Our, our sermon this morning is from Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. So turn to Romans 8 in your Bible. If you brought it, if not, grab a pew Bible and turn to page 888. It's where you can find our passage this morning uh, in Romans chapter 8. Um, this, this is going to be our last sermon for, for a minute uh, in the book of Romans. We're going to take a little uh, break from it. Um, in, for the next few weeks. We'll probably hear from a psalm next week. We'll hear from the Gospel of John on Easter Sunday. We've got a Good Friday service beforehand that uh, Matt McKeon is going to speak to us from some of the events leading up to the resurrection out of the Gospel of John. Um, so yeah, and then we'll yeah, kind of take, take some time away from Romans uh, in the time after that, probably get back into it later this year. This, this kind of point between Romans 8 and Romans 9 kind of marks a, a convenient uh, stopping point or turning point um, because it's, there's kind of a shift in the book that we'll see when we, when we dive back into it. Romans 1 through 8 uh, kind of makes one contiguous, like, you know, continuous um, argument, right? It, there's, there's a flow to it. Every, everything that Paul argues in each, uh, you know, successive chapter builds on what came in the chapters before it and kind of leads up to what is coming in the, the, the ones that follow it. Um, Romans 9 through 11 are kind of a little uh, interlude almost, uh, where, where Paul kind of takes everything that he has established in Romans 1 through 8 about who God is and who we are and how we are saved by grace through faith, trusting in Jesus, and how when God saves someone, he keeps them forever and they can have assurance. God takes all of those promises that we saw in Romans 1 through 8, and he applies them specifically to, and he looks specifically at the nation of Israel. Because it kind of raises the question... For, especially for a Jewish person in the first century, if what Paul's preaching is true, then that means that what we believe and what we think about God and how God relates to us as Israelites in the first century, like it's kind of calling all of that into question, right? If Paul is saying that God never uh, loses his people, right? God, God saves his people and he keeps them forever. Well, God made promises to Abraham, and Paul seems to be implying that some of the Israelites are not, in fact, saved. And so, did God lose them? And, you know, like, what, what, what do we make of, of the nation of Israel, the promises that God made to the patriarchs and the forefathers of Israel? What do we make of, you know, all of that? Church, you know, Jew, Gentile, church. Like, and so Romans 9 through 11 looks at that. Looks at uh, how God's promises in the gospel work themselves out specifically with the nation of Israel in all of eternity. So it's kind of a little interlude. And then Romans 12 through 16 is uh, application, right? A lot of Paul's letters do that. They, they have, you know, the first half will be doctrine. This is what's true about God. This is what's true about humanity. This is what's true about salvation. And then the latter half or the last few chapters will be application. Now that we've established that, Here's how you should live with, you know, with, at, with respect to your neighbor, with respect to the government, with respect to you know, other Christians who uh, maybe you don't agree with on everything. Right? That, so, so 1 through 8 is doctrine. 9 through 11 is this kind of interlude where we look specifically at the nation of Israel. 12 through 16 is application. And so this is kind of a good uh, you know, point to take a little bit of a break from, from Romans uh, for a few um, weeks. Now, uh, the Romans, this, this passage, Romans 8, 31 through 39, uh, is specifically kind of wrapping up. You can kind of see some uh, textual clues that link 
the end of chapter 8 with the beginning of chapter 5. That kind of say that that's kind of a package deal, right? If 1 through 4 was Paul establishing, uh, you know, our sin and condemnation before God and God's grace to save us, um, you know, through the personal work of Jesus, then Romans 5 through 8 is kind of how God, uh, how we can be assured and know that God is going to keep us forever since that is true. And so, so this passage kind of summarizes and reiterates that reality, that when God saves someone, he keeps them forever. And so if you trust in Jesus, you can know with absolute, just rock, you know, hard foundation, you know, you can, you can be confident, take it to the bang, that God is going to keep you forever. That's, that's Romans 5 through 8, but Romans eight thirty one to 39 is really reiterating and emphasizing and kind of driving that point home. Now, uh, there's going to be four questions that Paul asks in rapid-fire succession to kind of prove that point, establish that point, and reiterate it, and we're going to just examine them each one after the other. The questions are, we can flip it up here, Fred, um, we can kind of see, but in verse 31, who can be against us? It's question number one. So be thinking about that. Who do you think can be against us? Question number two, verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That's the second question that we'll consider. Be thinking about what your answer is to that one. Question number three, who can condemn us? Verse 34. Be thinking about your answer to that one. And then question number five is, um, who can separate us from the love of God? That's in verse, uh, let's see, maybe verse 35. Who can, or, yep, yeah, verse um, 35 and following is who can separate us from love. So those are the four questions we're going to examine. Who can be against us? Who can bring a charge against us? Who can condemn us? And who can separate us from the love of God? So let's read the text, and then let's take a look at those four questions in that order. It says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. And we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we... Thank you for the privilege that it is to gather as a church family and listen to your word. 
God, we pray that we don't take that privilege for granted. The privilege of having been spoken to by the God that created us. The privilege of uh, having a Bible that we can carry with us and read it in our own language where we can read what the God who created to us has spoken to us. The privilege of gathering without fear of persecution to sing and pray and encourage one another. Lord, we pray that you would help us to listen to your word and to repent and to believe and to obey. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay. So what then shall we say to these things? Again, these things is uh, pretty much everything Paul's been saying from Romans 5 through to to Romans chapter 8. Like, let's bring this matter to its conclusion uh, and, and say everything that we need to say about it. What shall we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's question number one. Any guesses as to who can... If God is for us, who can be uh, against us? If you're thinking, I don't want... Like, this sounds like a trick question. It sounds like it's too easy. It's, it's like it, Paul is intentionally asking question after question that are rhetorical in the sense that they're so obvious. Like, the answer is, if God is for us, then no one can be... Right? God is... Uh, everyone that we know, everyone that we see, right, is finite. We're a creature. God is infinite. He is the creator. And so no one can stand against God. No one can, if God wants to be for us, if God wants to uh, accomplish something in our lives, no one can ensure that that thing does not happen, right? God's will wins out. God's sovereign plan wins out over that of any other being, human beings, principalities, powers, Satan himself. No one can thwart, right? If, you know, if, if, if God wants to, wants to save you and keep you and bring you into his presence forever, no one can stop him from doing that. If Jerry wants to make spaghetti for dinner and our boys say, we don't want that, we want ice cream, then we would say, all right, like, Duly noted, appreciate, appreciate your input and your feedback, but we're going to have spaghetti, so everyone sit down and let's, you know, have, have dinner together. Um, because she is the parent, she's the, she's the mother, she's in charge, so we're happy to hear your, hear your input, but ultimately mom's plan for what we're going to eat together as a family is what's going to, no one can, if, if, if Jerry is for spaghetti, who can be against it, right? No one. Because, because there's this power differential between a child and a parent and a mother or a father, right? My, my plan is what is going to happen here. I'm the one who is in control. Now, the, the, there's that power differential between a mother and a three-year-old is vast. There are, a, I can think of a million things right now off the top of my head that Jerry can do as a grown woman that, that Baxter cannot because he's a three-year-old child. But so there's a, there's a, there's a sizable power differential between a mother and, and a, a small child. But the power differential between God and every human being is vastly greater than the power differential between a parent and their, and their child. If you were to take every single person on the planet and 
you know, somehow get them all to, to agree and to unify together with one plan and one purpose. And you were to take all of their strength and kind of bundle it all up together and all of their resources and all of their money and kind of deploy all of that in this one unified purpose. If you were to, if you were to then take all of that and multiply it by a million, a billion, a trillion, right? The, the power differential between God and that huge, massive, you know, thing that you want to deploy against God is still infinitely greater than the power differential between a, a parent and their young child. No one can stop God from doing what he wants to do. No one can stop God from, from accomplishing his sovereign purposes. So if, if it is true that God is for us, then the answer is no one can be against us. No one can keep you from uh, enjoying eternity with God in his presence if it is in fact true that God is for you. Which raises the question, how do we know that God is for us? Because this is an if-then statement, right? If God is for us, but, but how do, you know, Ben, I don't always feel like God is for me. Sometimes I pray and it seems like my prayers aren't being answered. Sometimes uh, I'm suffering in such a way that it makes me think that maybe God is not for me. Or maybe God is not able to, uh, you know, write the story of my life the way that I want it to be written. How can I know that God is, in fact, for me? That's verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Right? Paul says, okay, we've established that if God is for you, then no one can be against you. And you want to know how you can be sure that God is for you? If you want, if you want to know how you, a, a sinner, a person who has violated the righteous sovereign will of God and rebelled against him and rejected him, if you want to know and have confidence that God is for you, here's how you can know. Look to the cross. Look to Jesus and who he is and what he did for you on the cross. At the cross, God the Father willingly, actively decided to send his son to his death, his brutal painful, violent death. At the cross, Jesus willingly walked on this mission that his Father sent him on, and he faithfully walked it all the way to the cross, to his death. God did not spare his own Son, but he gave him up for us all. As the author of Hebrews puts it, Jesus didn't, I'm sorry, Paul in Philippians, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held on to, but rather he humbled himself and became a person, and ultimately he died on the cross. And Paul is saying, if God was willing to do that massive thing, Sending his son to die for you. If Jesus was willing to do that massive thing, give his life as a sacrifice for yours. If God was willing to do that, then doesn't it stand to reason that he is also going to be willing to take care of you and to keep you? 
in, in philosophy, it's called an argument a fortiori, which means an argument from the greater. If you can establish this greater thing, then it all but proves, it lends credibility to, if not actually proves this, le- right? you know, if John can dunk a basketball, then it stands to reason that John can walk up this flight of stairs, right? Like, argument from greater to lesser. And Paul's saying, if God was willing to give his son to die on the cross for you, then of course God is willing. He will be willing to keep you. Of course he's going to provide for your needs. Of course he's going to keep you and bring... Your salvation and your eternal life with him was the thing that he died to purchase. So why would he die to purchase something and then fail to, to do it? Fail to, you know, like actualize the thing that he purchased? Why would God do the harder, more difficult thing of dying on the cross and then fail to do the lesser thing of, of keeping you uh, since he has now purchased your salvation? There's a principle, principle that you study in business. I'm, I'm not not a business mind, but um, so my understanding is uh, a, a principle in business, so is it um, more expensive to more expensive to uh, get a new customer, or is it more expensive to, to keep a customer that you already have if you have a business? Who, who thinks it's more expensive to get a new customer? That's more expensive. Who thinks it's more expensive to keep a customer that you already have? Okay, so yeah, a few, few hands. It's, it, and I was surprised by this. It's, um, d- depending on the industry and depending on which, you know, got, which guy from the Harvard whatever business review you believe, uh, it's anywhere from five times more expensive to 25 times more expensive to, keep, uh, to, to get a new customer than it is to keep a customer that you already have, right? If you, if you own a gym... You have a bunch of members paying you their, their membership every month. That's just, that's just money coming in, right? But it, so, so to keep them is, is you just kind of just keep the machine in motion, keep the wheels turning. But if you have to go find and, and acquire a new customer, you have to, you know, advertise for it. You've got to send out flyers. You've got to pay to get all these leads of people that have said they're interested in joining a gym. You've got to pay a salesperson to follow up on those leads and try to close them. You've got to lure them in with, you know, introductory pricing. Um, you know, you've got to, you know, set up their billing process. Even once they're in, you have to teach them how to use the machines and make sure that you set the proper expectations for, for how your business works and what they can, right? There's, it's, it's a lot of work to bring on a new customer it's, it's exponentially less work to keep the customers that you already have, which is why it's, which, you know, if you're, a, if you're a business owner, it's so important to treat your customers well and, you know, look out for their, their customer satisfaction and that thing. The principle is you would be a fool to spend all of this time and all of this money going to do the harder, more difficult, less lucrative thing of finding new customers and then sleep on and neglect and fail to devote time and resources to doing the easier, less expensive, more surefire thing of keeping your current customers. That's foolish. That's a waste of time and money. 
God is not a fool. So God does not do the more difficult thing of sending his son to die on a cross to save you and then fail to do the next thing, which is to finish the job and keep you. God won't do that. If God was willing to spare his son and give him up as a sacrifice for you, then God is also willing to graciously give you all things. Jesus died to secure your eternal salvation. God is not going to fumble and drop the ball and fail to keep you and make sure that you receive your eternal salvation. So that's question number one. If God is for us, who can be against us? Answer, no one. How can we know that God is for us? Because Jesus died for us, and so God is not going to send his son to die and then fail to do the next thing, which is keep us. So number one, the answer to question number one is no one. Question number two, who then shall bring any charge against God's elect? Any guesses as to what the answer of this one is? The answer is, is no one. No, no one can, can bring any charge against God's elect, right? Uh, and, and the reason why, right, the answers are all kind of implied. Who can be against us? No one, and here's why. Who can bring any charge or, against us? No one, and here's why. Because it is God who justifies. No one can bring any charge against God's elect because God is the person who justifies sinners. It's not anyone else. It's God. Justification To justify means to declare righteous. If you are justified, it means that the person in whose eyes you have been justified has declared you to be righteous. They've said that you haven't done anything wrong. And so Paul says, no one can bring a charge against any of God's children because they have been justified, and specifically because God is the one who did the justifying, not anyone, right? not anyone else. Now, this doesn't mean that so when Paul says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect, and the implied answer is no one, it doesn't mean that no one will actually attempt to bring any charges against God's elect. People do. Someone in, someone in particular does, named Satan. That's kind of his whole job. His whole full-time existence is bringing charges against God's people. Revelation chapter 12 says that Satan is the deceiver of the whole world. He's the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night. So Satan, all day, 24-7, day and night, accuses, brings accusations, brings charges against God's elect. God, this person is guilty. They have sinned against you. Uh, they, you should not save them. They don't deserve to be saved. If, if you were, God, if you were really righteous like you claim to be, then if you, if you really hated sin like you claim to do, then you would cast them into hell. Satan is uh, appealing to God and bringing accusations against you to God right now constantly. And Satan brings accusations against people directly, right? Did God really say that? Do you really think that God loves you? God is withholding good things from you. Do you really think that God would save you after everything that you have done, after how you have broken his heart? Do you really think that God still loves you and wants you to be in his presence? Satan constantly, professionally, 
full-time, brings accusations, brings charges against the people of God, both to them and to God about them. So Paul's not saying that no one will bring a charge against God's elect. He's not saying that no one will attempt to bring any charges against God's elect. He's saying that no one will bring any charges against God's elect that stick, right? And, and that, that prove to be credible and actionable, right? Here's a charge that, that I am now going to respond, respond to. I'm going to, right? Satan has brought this charge that has, that has now bound God's hand to act in a way that God otherwise would not have done. No charges will ever be brought to God that are credible and actionable. Satan will attempt to, but none of them will actually stick. And the reason why no credible, actionable charges will be brought against God is or will be brought against God's elect is because God is the one who justifies. God, God is the one who says whether his people are righteous or not. Satan doesn't have, he doesn't get to say whether you're righteous or not. No other person that's bringing accusations against you before God gets to say, they don't get the final say over whether you are righteous or not. God gets that. If you, like, I feel like a business professor today. If you have a small business, right, if you, if you start a, a, a restaurant. If you have a, a restaurant, you're make, it's a sandwich shop. And you hire all these people and you have all these recipes, family recipes. You hire these people, you train them how to make the sandwiches. Everything's going. You, you know, you're, you're several months in. And then someone comes up and says, you know, I watched your employee make a sandwich for that person and they didn't do it right. Like they, they made it wrong. I worked in the sandwich. I, I worked at Chick-fil-A, right? I worked at whatever. And they didn't make that sandwich right. They should have made it a different way. I would like for you to discipline and or fire your person. That You'd be like, all right, well, thanks, man. But listen, I, it's my, I'm the one who says whether he made the sandwich. Like, they work for me. I am the one who trained them. And so, like, you don't say whether that person is a good worker or not. I do. And ultimately, our customers do. But, like, we, n- none of us here answer to you. You don't get a say in that whole process. I'll be the judge of my employees and how good of a job they're doing, and the customers and the market will be a good job of our restaurant and whether or not we're viable or not, but we don't need you inserting yourself into the process. That's, that's how God handles charges that are brought to him against the people that he has saved. He says, I'm the one who declares them to be righteous, not Satan, not any of their accusers or opposition. It's God is the one who justifies. So if God wants to save his people, it's entirely his prerogative to do so. And he's not at the, he doesn't need to get the approval of some third-party opposition that wants to undermine your salvation. God is the one who has the sole authority to save and to declare his people righteous. So question one, if God is for us, who can be against us? No one. And we can know that God is for us because Jesus died for us. Question two, who can bring any charge against us? No one. And the reason why no one can bring a charge against us is because God is the one who does the justifying. No, God is not, doesn't need anyone else's permission to justify us. God is the one who justifies, not anyone else. Number three, who is to condemn? There's a pattern, right? Who is to condemn? No one can condemn the elect of God, the people of God. 
A third implied answer of no one, and the reason why no one can condemn the people of God is because Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding, or who indeed is interceding for us. So, the reason why Satan's attempts at accusations fall flat before the throne of God, the reason why none of them actually make it through the lines of defenses and and actually result in our being condemned is because Jesus died and was raised and is interceding. So he doesn't say, no one is going to condemn, like the the, the onus, right? The, the, The burden of why the people of God are not going to be condemned does not reside in themselves it's not uh who will condemn the people of god no one can condemn the people of god because they are righteous because they are good good parent good spouse have good intentions they mean well right the the onus of why the people of god will never be condemned doesn't, doesn't reside in themselves. The onus of why they will not be condemned resides in Jesus and who He is and what He has done for you. Because Jesus died and because Jesus' death is sufficient to save sinners, that is why no one will ever condemn you. If you trust in Jesus, the idea that you might be condemned to eternity in hell. That is not a referendum on you. It's not a referendum on how bad your sin is. It's not a referendum on how sincere your faith is. If you trust in Jesus, the notion that you would be condemned to eternity in hell is a referendum about Jesus. It's a statement about Jesus. It's a statement about the perfection of His life of righteousness that is presented to the Father. It's a statement about the sufficiency of His death and whether or not it had the the, the power to satisfy the wrath of God on your behalf. If you trust in Jesus, the only way that you could be condemned to eternity in hell is not uh, if you happen to... uh, commit some sin that happens to be unforgivable, or it's not if you, uh, you know, happen to find out that your faith wasn't as sincere as you thought. If you trust in Jesus, the only way that you can be condemned is if there is something inferior in, something insufficient in, the life and the righteousness and the, the sacrificial death of Jesus. The only way you can be condemned is if Jesus sinned. Or if Jesus' death was somehow not sufficient to save you. If that were to happen, you would be condemned to hell for eternity. If that doesn't happen, then the condemnation of any one of God's children is absolutely, indelibly, impossible forever. But here's the great part, right? So, so we can trust that we will not be condemned if the death of Christ was in fact sufficient. Christ Jesus is the one who died. Well, 
How do we know that the death of Christ was sufficient? Because God raised Jesus from the dead. If, if Jesus' death was not sufficient to save sinners, God would have left him in the grave. God, the, the, the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead is evidence. It is incontrovertible evidence that the Father has accepted the sacrifice that the Son offered to him on our behalf. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. I have accepted his sacrifice. The record of debt that stood against the people of God has been canceled and done away with. No one who trusts in Jesus needs to fear that, we, that they will be condemned Ever, because Jesus' death, Jesus' death is what seals their being accepted by God, and, and we can know that the death of Christ was sufficient because of the resurrection of Jesus. So, not, so, so Jesus' death is what, what solidifies our not being condemned. The resurrection of Jesus is what vindicates that the death of Jesus was in fact sufficient. And now that Jesus has been raised from the dead, he's alive. Right now, he is alive, sentient, listening. Right? He, he is cogn- right? Jesus is not de- Every other religious leader is dead. Buddha is dead. George Washington is dead. Right? Every other teacher, sage, guru, prophet, they're all dead. Jesus is alive. Jesus is active. Jesus is doing something right now. He's interceding for you at the right hand of the Father. He wouldn't have been raised from the dead were his death for sin not sufficient. And now that he has been raised from the dead, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. The reason why none of Satan's charges against God's elect will result in their condemnation is because Jesus is interceding. He's intercepting them. He is is invalidating, right? Like, um, you know, watch these lawyer shows, right? Like the... You know, the, the, one, the one guy is, you know, says something in the objection, right? What is objection, relevance, objection, you know, hearsay, objection, badgering, whatever it is. And so, like, and then whenever he says objection, the judge will either say uh, sustained, which means, um, uh, yeah, that is, you can't, you can't, don't answer that. Don't, that question was wrong. Or overruled, which means, no, you have to answer it. It was... And so, so it's almost so. So Satan is accusing and bringing accusations and charges against the people of God, and Jesus is interceding. He's objecting, saying those right, and and God is saying that, that objection is sustained. I'm not going to entertain that accusation from Satan because Jesus is effectively and successfully interceding on our behalf. The Father is hearing. Jesus' intercessions and agreeing with them and dismissing the accusations of the devil on the basis of Jesus having interceded for us. So who can be against us? No one, because God is for us. And here's how we can know that he is. Who can bring any charges against us? No one. Because God is the one who justifies. And who can condemn us? No one, because Jesus has died and he was raised from the dead and he is interceding for us right now at the right hand of God the Father. Which brings us to question number four. Who shall separate us from 
the love of Christ? Implied answer number four, no one. And Paul says, let's, you know, let, let's, let's, you know, be, let's, let's be as clear as we can, as exhaustively clear as we can. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? How about any of these usual suspects? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Will any of those potentially separate us from the, right? It, you know, chances are, if there's two people that love each other and, and uh, somehow a wedge gets driven between them and they get driven apart and they go from loving each other to despising each other, loving each other and no longer being willing to be in the same room as each other, it's a good chance that one of these usual suspects to, had something to play. Tribulation. Just, a, just suffering. Just, just in, in general, suffering. Bad things that, that happen. Hardship. People turn their backs on us. Things that we were counting on or dependent on let us down. Tribulation then leads to distress, which is how we... Res- right? Tribulation is difficult circumstances. Distress is how we respond in our soul to those difficult circumstances. Anxiety, sorrow, pain, frustration, anger, exhaustion. So Paul's saying... Can the difficult circumstances separate us from the love of Christ? Well, let's find out. Can the way that we respond to those difficult circumstances and being in distress, can that separate, can that make God stop loving us? Right? What about external forces acting upon us like persecution? What about, you know, um, natural forces like famine, lose your job, market recession? There's no, we don't have any way to feed our family? What about nakedness, danger, right? Sword, right? All of these different things that could possibly happen to us, these various kinds of tribulations that we might experience in our given lives, is there any chance that any of those might possibly separate us from the love of Christ? And then Paul quotes in verse 36, he quotes from Psalm 44, He says, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So if verse 35, verse 35 is this like all of these potential things, right? What can separate us from the love of Christ? Here's a laundry list of things that might conceivably do the trick. What about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? But there's no... Paul hasn't actually gone and said, these are all, we're in the hypothetical now, right? Hypothetically, what if this were to happen? Hypothetically, what if this were to happen? But verse 36 actually says, yeah, and it's, it's going to. Because Psalm 44 is a psalm about the people of God, not hypothetically, what if this were to happen, but actually tangibly suffering, humiliation, defeat, mockery. They're waiting and hoping for the Lord to vindicate them and save them. And they're praying. And as they are recounting their experiences, they're saying, this is what we have experienced. We've been being killed all day long. We are like sheep slaughtered by a a wolf that attacks us and destroys us. So, So verse 35, Paul's saying, here's a bunch of things that might conceivably, if anything can separate you from the love of Christ, it would be one of these things. And verse 36 is, make no mistake, you will experience those things. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, all of those things are not potentialities for the, for the follower of God. They are inevitabilities for the person who loves God and walks with God. 
So, given that, given the fact that we will experience those things from verse 35 and those things from verse 36, which is calling back to Psalm 44, given that we will experience those things, what's the likelihood, what's the possibility that any of them actually effectively separates us from the love of Christ? Verse 37. No. All right, let's see the next, next verse here. No. None of those things can separate us from, right, it doesn't matter what uh, might hypothetically happen in our lives. It doesn't matter what inevitably is going to happen in our lives. None of those things can separate it because the love of Christ is more powerful. It's stronger than any of those things. All of those external forces that are threatening to, to separate you from the love of Christ, the, right, what, the, what was it, the, the immovable force hits the, irresistible force hits the immovable object, right? Only one, like, if you've got the love of Christ over here and you've got all of these external forces that are trying to separate you from it, only one of them is actually immovable. And that's the love of Christ. It doesn't matter how difficult the circumstances are, it cannot move this immovable object that is the love of Christ. None of those things can. In fact, even as we persevere through them in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So a conqueror is someone who, someone who conquers. <laughs> Stupid. Uh, a, a conqueror is someone who, yeah, they win, they and they, like because you win, you get right, you get something. This army over here attacks this army over here, and they conquer it. And so now, what do they have? They they have this the territory that you had. It's now ours. It's in our we we conquered you, and so now we this is the thing that we have conquered. We have it in our possession. That's great. That's awesome. Like I would love to conquer things and have more things. That's awesome. But if you're a conqueror, you have the thing that you conquered. For about as long as it takes for someone else to come conquer you. And now you lose that thing that you had that you got when you, when you conquered them, right? So a conqueror wins and gets something and takes something and has it and they can enjoy it, but they might be conquered themselves and then they will lose it. And so Paul says, trusting in Jesus is like being a conqueror in that you get something, Right? You get the love of God. You get eternal life in the presence of God forever. You get something kind of like a conqueror gets something when they conquer someone. But unlike, unlike being a conqueror, you, you, a conqueror can lose that thing that they conquered, but the, someone who trusts in Jesus can never, ever lose the love of God. They can never be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So, so trusting in Jesus is more, it's better than, than finding something or beating someone and taking it and enjoying the spoils of victory for as long as it takes for someone else to come and beat you. Being, trusting in Jesus, you're more than that because you have, in, you have been given indelibly, irrevocably, forever, no one can take away the love of God that you now have in Christ Jesus. And then Paul kind of sums it up and reiterates it with this kind of poetic, illustrative language, for I am sure that neither death nor life. So that's everything, right? Like, like, I mean, death, Life and death kind of represents the entire... If if life and death cannot separate you from the love of God, then certainly nothing in this world could. 
But it's not just things in this world. It's, th- it's right, neither life nor death, everything in the physical world, nor angels or rulers. So that's everything that exists beyond the world in the spiritual realm. But it's not just, those, it's not just physical world and spiritual realm here in the here and now, but it's that extended out forever into eternity. Neither, height nor, or neither death nor life, angels or rulers, things present or things to come. So we've got everything physical, everything non-physical, Everything now, everything into the future, forever and ever, neither height nor depth. So, so, you know, all the way up to heaven, all the way down to hell. Nothing in all of creation, nothing ever will ever be able to keep God from loving you. Nothing will separate you from the love of God. If you trust in Jesus, then God will never stop loving you, and his love will not, it cannot fail to save you and keep you. It will overcome anything and everything that could ever stand in its way. The children's Bible that we read to our kids, the Jesus Storybook Bible, Sally Lloyd-Jones calls it God's never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. God's love cannot fail. It will not fail. God has trained his love on his people, the people for whom Christ died. And God will never, can never, it will never happen. God will never stop loving them. Nothing can ever separate the people of God from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Who can be against us? No one, because God is for us. And he's proven that by dying on the cross for us. Who can bring a meaningful, actionable charge against us? No one, because God is the one who justifies his people. No one else. Who can condemn us? No one, because Jesus has died for us. Jesus was raised from the dead. And Jesus is interceding for us even right now. And who can separate us from the love of Christ? No one, nothing in all of creation Now or forever into the future, nothing can ever separate us from the love of Christ. That is God's promise to every single person who trusts in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, uh, what wonderful, beautiful, glorious, soul-strengthening, perseverance-mobilizing news that is that your love will prevail and it will bring us home to be with you. God, we thank you that you did not spare your son, but that you gave him up for us all. We thank you that Jesus died and was raised and is interceding for us. And we thank you that nothing in all of creation will ever separate us from your love. Lord, we love you and we trust you and we pray that you would help us to persevere in that. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.